Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Steve Commando, and we are discussing the intersection of psychology and terrorism and sort of um, security events. So towards the end of the show, we're going to discuss COVID-19. Um, and we, we kind of wanted to do this show to sort of discuss sort of this under-discussed but ever-important part of security, which is psychology. Where do we include psychology? Where do we include psychiatry? And where do we include the role of victims, perpetrators, and um, that sort of thing? Uh, Steve is the principal at Behavior Science Applications with over 30 years in disaster and terrorism response in both state and federal programs. And he's definitely a really smart guy on this. So uh, please welcome Steve for me. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Oh, good. Um, I want to start off with sort of a a very broad question, which is when we think and and frame terrorism, how do we do that? from the perspective of psychology? Well, I guess there's a couple ways to, to think about that. And I'll start in a very general way and then get a little more specific. And I think it's a very useful analogy or metaphor um, that, that I could share that may help people understand just the importance. <clears throat> First of all, terror is fear. That's what it is. Terrorism is the use of fear for a strategic goal uh, to try to uh, certainly uh, hurt your your enemy or adversary, but it's all uh, by its nature psychological warfare. So at the strategic level, terrorism is always psychological. At the tactical level, the nature of the the attack, bombing, shooting, kidnapping, etc., uh, is intended to bring about not just a uh, a significant psychological impact on the victim, the direct victim of an attack but certainly the larger audience as well. So if we look at kind of, you know, the the definitions of terrorism, by and large, they all talk about the use of uh, fear to coerce an enemy, to change uh, public opinion or or governmental policy. But it's through the strategic use of fear that terrorists um, actually achieve this. So it's all psychological when you look at it from, from kind of my standpoint. The other thing that we know, and circle back to that metaphor I wanted to share in just a moment, um, was the sort of fear that terrorists use is referred to as ambient fear. Now, we know fear is actually one of the most powerful shapers of human behavior, but the most powerful variant of a frightful or threatening event is actually when you know that that threat is out there, when you know there is that risk, and you know it's going to happen again, you simply don't know when or where, when fear or threat is delivered on a random schedule. So terror, you know, terrorism itself is, is as old as, as recorded time in different manifestations. But people figured out a long time ago, at a psychological level, what we respond to. And there's actually a stronger human impulse to avoid uh, pain 
than there is to seek pleasure. So this is a very, very strong primal impulse of ours is to respond to and try to avoid, you know, threatening situations. It's, it's obviously in the interest of survival of, of the species that we stay away from things that can kill us. So terrorists, by their nature, and I'm using that term in a very, very broad way right now, um, but people figured out in general a long time ago that you don't necessarily have to create another attack. You don't actually have to uh, hurt another person um, to really use fear strategically. And I think there's a very old saying, you know, kill one, scare a hundred, uh, which is then the use of this threat of another attack, this use of ambient fear, where fear is always operating in the background that another attack can happen at any time in any place. You know, and people sometimes say, well, terrorist attacks, they, they happen somewhat randomly. And of course, they don't happen randomly at all. They're very well thought through and timed by, by the attacker. But the goal is always to maximize the psychological impact of the event, just kind of understanding um, the terrorism is based on the use of fear and how to create the most fearful situations possible. So we're trying to create the maximum degree of psychological, social, an economic consequence through an act of terror, understanding essentially how to leverage this very basic and very primal fear response. So the metaphor or the analogy I wanted to share, which I think is, is always applicable and even more applicable right now, um, just in our moment in history, and including you know the COVID-19 scenario, is this analogy of, we call this the cracked crack sidewalk, um, sort of, of analogy or metaphor. If you could picture the sidewalk outside of your home or building or office and, and kind of think of that as society, any society, any nation, anywhere in the world. And unless you looked at it very closely, you probably wouldn't notice that sidewalk has a lot of very fine cracks in the cement or the bricks or whatever it is, but there's a lot of very fine cracks. In three seasons out of the year, and this, of course, is specific to your geography and where you live, but I live in, in the Northeast, so we're talking about what winters look like in the Northeast or the Rockies or the Northwest. But in three seasons of the year, when it rains, rain can seep into those very, very small, fine cracks in society. And those cracks in the sidewalk, they are divisions between the society, and all societies have them. They have them in different ways, and they have them to different degrees. But the divisions are, you know, along racial lines and socioeconomic lines and you know, political views and class and religion, and there's all these different ways that societies are fractured. And on a good day, we just go about our business. We walk right over the sidewalk. We don't pay a lot of attention. As I said, when the rain comes, that water seeps into the fine cracks in the sidewalk, and in most seasons of the year, there's no consequence. Sun comes out in a day or so, the, wa the water dries up, the sidewalk dries up, there's no problem. But in one season of the year, when the environment changes, now we're speaking about winter, and there's water in those fine cracks of the sidewalk, in that new environment, in that freezing temperature, those cracks start to expand, they start to deepen, and they start to break up that sidewalk. They start to break up that society. At a strategic level, terrorism is not intended to create the cracks. 
that's at the tactical level. That's hitting someone, that's hurting someone. We create perhaps, you know, something of that nature. Terrorism, much more at the strategic level, is trying to exploit the existing divisions in a society. So whether we're here right now, we're in the UK, we're in different places in, you know, around the world, we think about those divisions politically, economically, and otherwise in a culture, and how then a culture or society becomes vulnerable to terrorism because terrorists are not seeking to create the cracks. They're seeking to exploit the pre-existing cracks. If we are very polarized in our views, our policies, our perspectives on anything, uh, ranging from you know the operation of a country and, and what we stand for, uh, to how we respond as a nation to something like COVID-19. Do we reopen the government very, or the society and, and the commerce very quickly? Uh, do we become more protective of our health and stay shut down longer to, to prevent the spread of disease? People obviously along these lines take very polarized sorts of positions. And those create, those are just natural in any society. Those are the cracks. Terrorism then seeks to change the environment. Just as I mentioned, when the environment changes in winter, those fine cracks that are filled with water now freeze and expand and break up the sidewalk. Terrorism seeks to create a changed environment in which we always have to worry about the next attack. That's that strategic use of ambient fear. So I know it's been a very long answer to your question, but from my standpoint and probably many people in my discipline, everything about terrorism is psychological. You know, it's really about our, our response and perception of fear and how, again, we best balance, you know, kind of, of keeping the sidewalk intact, knowing that terrorist leaders and organizations and, and doctrines understand how to create and exploit those cracks, or at least, you know, deepen and widen them uh, through the use of their, their tactics. But that's different than the strategy. Psycho- psychologically, this is operating primarily at the strategic level of terrorism. So that was a really good answer. And I kind of want to pick apart this idea of a terrorist and a victim, a perpetrator and a victim, because it sounds like on one hand, terrorism very much succeeds by linking a psychological effect to a physical action, blowing up a car, blowing up a building, a lynching, whatever. And then really the target isn't the people that you kill, but rather the psychological effect that you inflict on a victim. So can you sort of parse and dig deeper into this idea of what is a perpetrator and who are victims? Or, you know, is it better to call a victim? Is it better to sort of parse it out and say, there are victims, there are people who are physically targeted, and then there's an audience. There is yeah, so the, oh, from, yeah, and I, I understand your question, or at least I think I do. And from our perspective, honestly, the victim, if you think about it, there's the direct and indirect victims. And the direct victims are, um, you know, kind of casualties of, of the event. But they're very often randomly selected. I mean, if we think about something like the Boston Marathon bombing, you know, it was the symbolic nature of the event for a number of reasons. It's Patriots Day. It's a, it's a big gathering. It, it, you know, the event was, the, the attack was intended um, certainly to hurt and kill some. Um, but 
you have those direct victims who are hurt and killed in the attack. But the larger victim, the indirect victim, is the larger community and society that's now affected by this, that in some way has to operate under a different level of fear and, and we change everything about our way of life or you know, how we feel in our community towards uh, different groups and, and, and all these things. So there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is that by design, there's everyone is a victim, but there are different degrees of separation in terms of that victimhood. And that's, you know, that's really, again, that difference between the direct target and the, the larger audience who sees this. But they're all victims of different sorts. And, and we, you know, we know that psychological trauma, something that we may get into a little bit later, uh, both happens at the individual level and the collective level, you know, what happens to that community. So there's very little, you know, separation in terms of that, because we know in many, many, if not most, uh, terrorist attacks, terrorists are picking targets that have a symbolic value, that are target-rich environments, that will maximize casualties. But in most instances, they don't have any really personal knowledge of their targets. So this is different than things like workplace violence or school shootings in, in some instances, although there's a lot, a lot of random target selection in, in some of those examples. But by its design, the terrorist is probably usually, unless it's something like an assassination, is usually not thinking too much about the exact um, individual or individuals who will, who will be those fatalities or those casualties, but what they symbolize. So if we park a you know, a, a V-bed in, in front of a daycare center, if we attack, uh, you know, a classroom, uh, the fact that these are young and innocent and, you know, children and such intensifies the psychological trauma and the horror and the dread of the, the situation. And it's interesting, and I use this term dread kind of casually right now, but we know dread actually is comprised of a number of different variables. It's not just kind of extreme fear or horror. And dread actually works as kind of a force multiplier for psychological trauma. So the perpetrator is thinking, look, how bad uh, can I make this in terms of the psychological impact across those different audiences? And you can almost think about throwing a stone into a pond and seeing the, the concentric circles ripple outward in terms of those primary, secondary, tertiary victims um, of the event. And the ripples keep going, you know, outward. The other part of your question was about this kind of distinction between perpetrator and victim. And I know many people who have listened to, to this, will listen to this broadcast and, and your other broadcasts are familiar with this statement. And some people may agree with it more than others. And so many people may, may absolutely hate this statement um, or this, this phrase that one man's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And very often, if we think about the quote terrorist, that's a person who feels that they are legitimately fighting back. They are the victim. Their village has been subject to drone attacks. Their innocence, you know, children and families and non-combatants have been hurt or killed or maimed in these attacks. And their use of violence in their mind is absolutely justified. So when we think about this idea of victim and perpetrator, it is completely fluid. And the other point is, it obviously depends on where you sit, you know, which, which side of the equation, because this is a continual loop of cause and effect. If we've attacked, you know, if, if my team 
red team has attacked. It's going to require a counterattack by the blue team, and the cycle goes on and on. And terrorism is very often asymmetrical sort of warfare in, in which the tactics or the means are are different. You know, the terrorist groups very often don't have the militaries or the equipment or the sophistication to come out you know, full military sorts of assaults. So they're reduced to using these much more, you know, rudimentary tactics of a mass shooting or a car bombing or suicide bombing and so forth. But it's that constant, you know, cycle of, of everyone is a victim, everyone's a perpetrator, and it depends entirely on your perspective of essentially, you know, who started this and where does it end? And, and you know, but it's, it's not a clear point. If you ask another audience, who's the victim? It's my village that was just, you know, just pummeled in a drone attack. And, and of course, we're going to fight back in whatever way we can. And if we talk about the folks who now are on the receiving end of the terrorist attack, we see ourselves as the victims of someone. And, and again, there's always that gap in terms of perspective of perpetrator versus victim. So in some ways, it's actually kind of arbitrary because constantly we are all both simultaneously the perpetrator and the victim of these acts because of this, the, the kind of cycle that we get locked in in, in terms of cause and effect. And, and as I said, that may not sound um, acceptable uh, to some people. And we tend to polarize and always see the attacker, the adversary as the bad guy. But you have to hold on to this guy, this idea that the, the bad, the quote bad guy sees themselves as the quote good guy. They're feel justified in their use of force. They feel it's necessary and they feel that um, it may be the only way, again, that they can create safety for themselves or, or protect, you know, their ways of life. So it's very, very subject to your unique perspective, where you sit and stand in the global community as to who's the victim and who's the perpetrator of, of any sort of, you know, terrorism. Interesting. So I kind of want to um, kind of look at the victims of terrorism. And I kind of want to, I mean, you kind of, you pointed out that perpetrator and victim is kind of a fluid state. And then I'm kind of curious then about trauma that a perpetrator, that a victim suffers through. And not just trauma as a singular idea, but as a sort of generational and broad spread. Is, is trauma something that, kind of goes away after after a couple years or is it just something that kind of just sits within you know a certain population and just kind of never really dissipates like how do we how do we think about the concept of trauma here well i think there's really important parallels between you know what i mentioned before individual trauma and collective trauma and that's trauma of that one victim or their friends or family and trauma of the larger uh, culture, society, or, or community. And it, it, probably the easier way to start thinking about this is, is at the individual level and then scaling it up to how it kind of stays with a community or a culture. So when we think about traumatic stress, especially the diagnosable forms of traumatic stress, of which there are two, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and acute stress disorder. And these are part of the kind of psychiatric manual of, of understanding all the different mental health conditions and psychiatric disorders. 
The difference between those two uh, is very simple. Post-traumatic stress disorder implies that uh, there's been a lag of time between the event and the onset of the different symptoms of trauma. And the symptoms of of trauma tend to be uh, three individual uh, specific. Out of a whole cluster of characteristics, there's three that jump out all the time. Their arousal, which is this kind of hypervigilance, and we remain somewhat wired and protective now because we're waiting for you know, we're on guard for it to happen again. And you could see that at the individual level and you could see it at the societal level. There's avoidance in which people don't want to be reminded of the terrible thing that happened um, because obviously that brings back a lot of just awful thoughts, feelings, and memories and such. And there's uh, re-experiencing. And re-experiencing at the individual level is something like dreams and nightmares and flashbacks and intrusive thoughts and images and, and things of that nature. But what we know about psychological trauma, if we think about something like PTSD, is the changes that are made uh, primarily to the brain, primarily to the limbic system, the kind of emotional regulation center of the brain, they're permanent. We don't cure traumatic stress disorders. They're a chronic condition now that we manage over time. So as a parallel, maybe, um, you think about diabetes. We don't have a cure for diabetes. Um, people manage their condition through the use of uh, maybe medication and um, lifestyle, and that might be exercise and wellness, and it might be you know, close attention to their diet, but they do things to manage it. And every once in a while, it may flare up and they may have a diabetic emergency and it may be very severe and debilitating, but you don't get diabetes to go away. We do not cure post-traumatic stress disorder. It has changed neural pathways in the individual, um, as I said, in the brain, primarily in the body, the different uh, anatomical structures, the different neurochemicals that are associated with trauma are lasting. And, you know, so the person then struggles with that and they're very sensitized to reminders of the event, as I said, um, to just being potentially overwhelmed by my thoughts and feelings about it, and also changing just their general posture towards life potentially potentially becoming more withdrawn and protective or just being very hypervigilant for any signs and signals of danger and potentially overreacting to future signs and signals. And one of the kind of markers of traumatic stress disorders is the brain and body now, well after the fact, have a real difficulty distinguishing signal from noise. They have a real problem kind of separating what's a reminder of trauma and what's an actual, you know, a real threat. A very simple example would be um, someone outside uh, their vehicle, their car backfires, and there's a loud, a loud boom. And the person who is uh, you know, a post-traumatic stress disorder survivor or acute stress disorder, uh, someone suffering with that condition, literally jumps out of their skin because at a neurological level, they're very kindled, we would say. That's the term neuro- neuropsychologically we use. They're kindled now to be at this very high level of, of kind of awareness or vigilance, and it triggers this whole reaction. So me and you perhaps hear this car backfire driving down the street, and we make a notice, and what's that? Then it's like a gunshot, maybe a firework. I don't know, but it wasn't anything threatening. We don't jump out of our skin. Someone with diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder or acute stress disorder literally jumps out of their skin, and someone actually may hit the deck thinking that there's like, incoming fire because of the way we're now neurologically changed. If you ramp that up to the societal level, um, 
you know, we end up with lasting changes in society. And one of the things that becomes difficult in societies is then also to distinguish signal from noise. What's a real threat that we should respond to societally? And I mean, respond might be changing something like airport screening or, uh, you know, there's a million variations of that, but changing something in the way we respond as governments and individuals. And how do we distinguish then that from real threat when we really should be on high alert alert and and be standing up all our defenses. And this is part of why there was a lot of criticism in the very early post 9-11 environment about the color-coded alert system. You know, it seemed like we were constantly ramping up and changing between this color and that color and people didn't know how to respond. And what happens then is we get kind of desensitized to the that problem because we can't make sense of the signal from the noise and, and people become, you know, somewhat like uh, desensitized to those warnings. So you see a lot of parallels, and that's a, you know, we could have a semester-long discussion on that, of how individual pro- uh, trauma um, kind of mimics or vice versa, collective trauma kind of mimics individual trauma in terms of our response. But the most important thing, again, of that was where I started, is that these changes are lasting. They don't necessarily go away, um, at least not in a generation. Uh, or two. And I said to actually my daughter today, who's in her mid-20s and asking questions like, Dad, when when will life start to feel normal again? When can I go do things I normally do? And I said, I don't know, Katie. It's going to be a very, very long emergency. And we don't much have a playbook for this, but I'll tell you that this for your generation is likely to be your 9-11, like my 9-11 was uh, the Pearl Harbor, you know, for, for a generation before. Is that real defining collective trauma that really reshapes um, our perception, our level of the need for uh, maintaining a defensive posture at all times? Um, of course, the COVID-19 the scenario is a very different sort of threat. And one of the things we know that's very important, and we could talk about you know, more if you'd like, is from a psychological trauma standpoint, terrorist events and acts of intentional violence are much, much more psychologically damaging and powerful than other sorts of traumas that someone might incur in a natural disaster, in a motor vehicle accident, in uh, an industrial accident at work or anything like that. There's so many different ways that people can be traumatized. When someone has done this to us purposefully and done it by design, they create the maximum degree of psychological, social, and economic consequences uh, it changes it in a lot of way, kind of at a cognitive level, what we think and how we think about it. At a neurologic level, it changes. And the psychological damage is much greater. So I'll give you an example. The most commonly occurring form of disasters worldwide are natural disasters. And in natural disasters, typically about 11 to 15% of the population go on to develop PTSD or, or related disorders. When we see an act of terrorism, the rates of PTSD and related disorders is typically two to three times higher. So what we know is when we think about mass violence, when we think about terrorism, as it relates to trauma, because of these different variables, these are some of the most traumatizing things that humans can endure. And it results in very, very severe and very lasting uh, effects on both the, invi- the individual, uh, their community, and our collective society. 
interesting. So uh, we're going to talk about COVID in a couple of minutes, but um, before we get to that uh, specifically, I wanted to visit one last topic with terrorism, which was the the idea of the lone wolf and the idea of radicalization. Um, and I think, for instance, you know, from 9-11 to now, so in that 20-year span, we've seen terrorist groups go from organized entities like Al-Qaeda, the IRA, you know, whatever example. And now we're beginning to see them, you know, more, you know, I hate to use the phrase as lone wolves, as individual actors who have taken up an ideology or however defined. And from the perspective of psychology, how do we differentiate the two? How do we differentiate somebody who's a member of a terrorist organization versus somebody who is, has taken the mantle of violence onto their shoulders and have decided to act on a particular ideology or a particular set of ideas? Well, there's a, there's a few things that are um, specific to that. And one is the rise of kind of lone actor terrorists. And we've tried to stay away from the phrase lone wolf over the last few years, one of the of it, because we're not accurate. And the way I mean it's not accurate is when we think about um, lone wolf terrorists, it kind of gives you this impression that the person is very uh, isolated, insulated, uh, off, you know, kind of off the grid. Um, and, and not part of mainstream society. When we look at lone actor terrorists, and I, I, let me circle back to that for one moment. In my 30 some odd years of work, there's one case that I had you know, some, some relationship to, some work with, um, which was the Unabomber case. The Unabomber is kind of a real uh, legitimate lone wolf in that the guy lived completely off the grid, had disconnected from society, and, you know, because of his sort of Luddite ideology, you know, just didn't want to have anything to do with, with society and technology and mainstream sort of life. He was a true lone wolf. Our lone actors are amongst us. They're going to our schools and they work in our business. They're part of our communities, but they, they become radicalized. And we'll talk more about that and become more, more, um, I guess, move to, you know, we talk about the transition from radicalization, which is a shift in opinion states, to mobilization, which is a shift in action, where now they're kind of primed for, for violence. Um, but this person is not in isolation. You know, they're interacting with other people every day who may or may not recognize, you know, maybe the indicators that someone is becoming radicalized or moving down a pathway towards that sort of violence. The lone actor, though, is a relatively new phenomenon, and it really rises out of two different things happening. And one is a, um, just a, a cause and effect sort of response. If we look in the wake of 9-11 at, at the governmental response here and abroad of um, changing security policies and postures, um, thinking, about, thinking about, you know, how we've hardened the... Uh, cockpit doors on airplanes, how we've changed screening in the airports, things of this nature, um, how our intelligence community has become 
um, much more sophisticated in terms of, you know, being able to uh, being able to intercept and, and work with different forms of intelligence, whether it's signalless intelligence or human intelligence or you know any other form of intelligence we gather. So our governmental response forced a change in which the groups couldn't communicate and people couldn't travel the way they did before. So if you look in the immediate post 9-11 environment, the typical model or, or the run up to, including the, you know, the 9-11 sort of attacks, uh, people would meet with and they were known by the um, leaders of a core group. Let's use example, Al Qaeda as, as our you know, kind of default group. And they would travel there, they would train in a camp, they would receive funding, they would receive operational plans, and they would be tasked to, to go execute this attack. And so there was a great kind of um, connection or knowledge. And there probably was a lot of communication back and forth. And, you know, probably a lot of that was meant to be somewhat covert, but people were communicating back and forth. If we look then at the modern era, you know, one was, as a call for in the jihadist community, for example, you know, lone jihad, which were individuals taking into their own hands um, the sense of, of needing to uh, fight a battle or fight a war and not necessarily wait for instructions from the core group um, you know, or blessings from the core group. And certainly in the, in the jihadist uh, propaganda, whether we're looking at Inspire or Dabiq or Ramiya sort of uh, online magazines, much more of a call for, for lone actor sort of violence. So, so two things were happening. Is one, at the structural level, people really couldn't travel, communicate, and, and be part of those core groups in the same way. So this call to action became much more um, diffuse. You know, just wherever you are, pick up whatever kind of weapon you can and, and commit this in, in support of our belief system. So that's one part that's that's happening there. The other thing that's happening is, and, and it's a very interesting phenomenon for me as a psychologist, <clears throat> is the role of mental illness actually in this, believe it or not. It's very, very interesting. And I think it leads back to your question about radicalization. So in these earlier iterations of group-based terrorists, it was very unlikely that group leaders would select and this is simply referred to as a selection effect. Um, the, group select, the groups would select or choose a person who had obvious signs or symptoms of mental illness because there were concerns about operational security, that this person may not be stable, may not execute the, uh, the, the attack correctly or, or at all. They may give away plots and plans and information that would put the whole group at risk. And so in the earlier iterations, you know, immediately around and post 9-11, group-based terrorist organizations or group-based terrorism, um, really you didn't see many actors at all who were mentally ill. In fact, if you look at this, and this sounds kind of wrong sometimes on face value, and I've had people argue with this with me in lectures and classroom discussions, is Steve doesn't, you know, aren't all terrorists mentally ill? Doesn't there have to be something psychologically wrong with a a person who's able to or willing to do this? And the answer to that clinically, and the answer to that from all the evidence is no. You know, if we look at earlier models of terrorism, we see that that terrorist looked 
psychologically normal, for lack of a better term, compared to the baseline population. There was no diagnosable mental illness. They weren't radically different uh, in those core ways in terms of psychological functioning. But as we start to then respond to the earlier waves of terrorism, post 9-11 and forward, and travel disrupted is disrupted, intelligence becomes more uh, robust. As all these things happen, it becomes impossible for the wood terrorist recruit uh, to travel and train to meet and be, you know, indoctrinated to be radicalized in person. And it starts to all move online, right? So now people are watching uh, videos and DVDs and lectures of, of prominent clerics who are uh, or part of the radicalization cycle. And there's not that that selection effect because a lot of these individuals now who are being attracted to the message um, are individuals who may be very isolated, very alone, and feel very powerless. And they don't necessarily, they're not dyed in the wool believers in a cause whether it's an extreme right, left, or otherwise cause. But one of the terms we use psychologically, and I think it's, it's appropriate here, is this kind of quest for significance. Um, just like we have in gang activity, where the person who's likely to be recruited by a gang is someone who feels um, vulnerable, someone who feels uh, isolated, alone, and, and undervalued, and no one knows them, and they're powerless in this world. But man, if you join the gang, You've got this brotherhood now. You've got people watching your back. You're part of something that's powerful and significant, and we rule the streets, right? So if we now think about someone who's sitting home and all this that used to happen in a dusty training camp in Afghanistan and Pakistan is now happening on someone's laptop screen uh, in which they're receiving these powerful messages, someone who felt otherwise powerless, who felt insignificant, can be brought into these messages where you could be part of something meaningful and significant and change the world. So one thing, this is a very interesting um, kind of statistic for me, is over the last decade, as we see this transition from group-based terrorist to lone actor terrorist, the Studies in this area tell us that about 13.5%, that's a very, very significant number, 13.5% of those individuals uh, who are, or let me rephrase the the quote, Um, the statistic quoted properly is that lone actor terrorists are 13.5 times more likely to have a mental illness than group-based terrorists. And it's primarily because of that selection effect that I mentioned, that there's not a screening process. So now me, sitting in my basement, on my computer, uh, listening to the, you know, the um, messages of a radicalized cleric or leader, finds resonance in me. This person who's alone, this person who's been struggling in society, who, who hasn't got any traction, who feels left out are seeing things that are incredibly powerful. They're changing the world. And maybe it's, you know, from creating a caliphate to something as horrific as, you know, a beheading sort of video um, is attracted to now something where they could feel a sense of belonging, a sense of importance, and a sense of power. So if we think about the radicalization process of someone who moves from that uh, place of what their everyday life was 
to start down that slippery path of radicalization, it usually is someone who is seeking meaning or seeking purpose. And very often the expression is used, and a number of terrorism scholars have talked about this, that radicalization is a quest for significance, that the person who otherwise felt significant, rather insignificant, um, is given an opportunity to be meaningful in this fight. And all I have to do is convince you that it's a fight worth fighting and, and you know, we need you, mother, and you know, we need you to be part of that fight. And you, you maybe have that mind that is now more ripe uh, to the radicalization process. So when we think about, you know, group-based terrorists versus lone actor terrorists, there's a tremendous amount of difference in the mindset and the deeper psychology, never mind the mental health of that individual, uh, all that become critical factors in, in how someone is radicalized today versus how someone was radicalized 20 years ago. So that has been um, adapting. And that's the nature of terrorism is always to be adapting and, you know, and responding to counters and you know, measures and countermeasures and so forth. But this is one of the biggest shifts in it is actually who is the um, who is the terrorist today has changed. And a lot of the lone actor terrorists, they are not died in the wall true believers in an ideology. You know, they're not people who live in those regions of the world that, that maybe feel victimized. And they're people who maybe aren't necessarily even converts to a specific uh, mindset or religious view or political view. But this that quest for significance and the message of the radicalization uh, process is powerful enough to pull them down that rabbit hole. Interesting. So um, I want to kind of switch footing from terrorism to our current circumstance with COVID-19. You, we've already talked about it a little, but I kind of want to dig a little deeper in the sense of uh, how do we define a pandemic in terms of trauma, in terms of sort of the psychological pressures. I think uh, in our pre-interview, you kind of you kind of mentioned it or you kind of framed it as a slow-moving mass casualty event, which was kind of an interesting phrase. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. It was kind of an interesting phrasing because I think about, so I'm old enough to have sort of witnessed 9-11 when it happened not in New York, but obviously on like CNN and now living through COVID-19. And it, it was kind of interesting because 9-11 happened on that day. And then the trauma kind of, I would say, spiked, but it wasn't, it kind of spiked. And then it was kind of ongoing. But now with COVID, it almost seems like the pressures are just like, oh, you know, I have to quarantine myself for two weeks. This should be okay. And then two weeks becomes four months so forth and so on and it becomes it just is like this ongoing sort of element of pressure but describe for us like how do we how do we sort of differentiate between a terrorist event and a pandemic in terms of trauma and sort of psychological sort of the the pressure okay so it's a great question and i'm glad you brought this up because you know what's probably on a lot of people's minds on the day of this recording is 
um, in some sense, maybe feeling less vulnerable to, to terrorism right now and more concerned and fearful of, um, of COVID-19. So let's think about, uh, about this. One of the key differences psychologically between something like a 9-11 event and COVID-19 is this concept we refer to as bookends. And what I mean by bookends is in most natural disasters, for example, fire, flood, earthquake, tornado, uh, most technological disasters like a plane crash or train crash, um, most acts of mass violence like a bombing, shooting, or kidnapping event, there's this very clear parameters in which someone can see when the event begins, they can see when the event is over, and they can clearly discern if they're in or out. And when we have that kind of response, we have that kind of event that has those clear parameters, what we likely get is a much more acute response, uh, meaning it's more immediate. So that goes back to your idea of it spiking. Um, and it tends to be characterized by the typical markers of traumatic stress I mentioned before, things like arousal avoidance and re-experiencing. When we have events that lack bookends, and this is not unique, and this is actually very interesting because a lot of kind of what uh, we've learned in, in looking at um, kind of both counterterrorism and emergency management is that when we have events that lack bookends, and that could be something like a, a bioterror event. And I had a very, very unique perspective because I live uh, in northern New Jersey outside of New York City uh, to be, you know, early on in the first weeks of the event, starting our work uh, on the long-term recovery at Ground Zero. And then it was, you know, that was probably within a week that psychological operations you know, were really initiated. About a week later, I was reassigned down to run psych operations at the Anthrax Screening Center uh, outside of Princeton, New Jersey. And that ran for about two weeks as we did the same sort of nasal swabbing and culturing and things we're doing now. And then I was sent back to my post at Ground Zero. So as, as, you know, someone looking at this from a psychological standpoint, I got to see in real time kind of differences between those events that have those clear bookends. Like we knew when the first plane hit, we knew when the last plane hit, we knew when the towers collapsed. And we saw this spike, as you mentioned, in traumatic stress reactions. And they were very significant and they were wide, you know, wide sweeping. And I talked to you a little bit earlier about statistically, at least, how we have much larger numbers of people post-traumatic stress disorder and like after a purposeful attack as opposed to a, a natural disaster or something of that nature. But when you look at events that lack bookends, you're talking about a threat like a, a bacteria, anthrax, a virus, COVID-19, chemical agents, radiation in the instance of a dirty bomb. You're talking about hazards that people can't see, smell, hear, or taste. And because of that aspect of invisibility, People cannot clearly tell when the event begins and when the event ends or if they're in or out. Now, obviously, right now, COVID-19 is such a, a novel virus to us. We're just a lot. We're just still learning about the, literally, about the DNA structure and the RNA of the virus um, is <clears throat> that we can have asymptomatic carriers. And at this moment, you or I could have almost no symptoms at all, feel pretty good today, and actually be a carrier uh, of that, or 
as just in the last day or two, New York City did some widespread testing of people uh, for antibodies to COVID-19, found that roughly about 20% of their sample are people who are obviously exposed to COVID over the last several months, whether they knew it or not. So when there's this invisibility and the threat could be all around us and it's long-term, you know, lacks the parameters, we get a very, very different psychological effect and it's not necessarily the same traumatic stress markers of arousal avoidance we're experiencing. It's much more of a physiological and somatic kind of response where people, you know, we're always kind of vigilant for the scratchy throat and the runny nose. And we're coming at least up here in the Northeast into spring allergy season when, you know, all the trees and flowers are blooming and lots of people will have runny noses and, and feel allergy symptoms. And obviously that can be misunderstood as, and concerns that, oh my gosh, may I be, could these be COVID symptoms? So when we think about it, you know, the, and people actually ask me this or, or say things to me sometimes like this. I was uh, reviewing, this is a very, very significant organization. You know, tell me about your, your emergency plans and your security plans and such. I said, oh, we have a plan for this, you know, it's kind of hazard and that hazard. And we have a plan for terrorism. And so what does that mean? You have a plan for terrorism. Oh, if we had a terrorist attack, this is how we would handle it. And this is how we react. And I said, well, that's kind of irrelevant because if the terrorist attack was bombing, it's going to be radically different than a terrorist event like a dirty bomb. Example. In Boston several years ago, a large-scale exercise that's been published since, and this is obviously not anything, uh, you know, sensitive or classified uh, in terms of a hypothetical dirty bomb scenario, suggested that the vast majority of the public, even well after uh, the part of town, and this was kind of the financial district, the part of town that was exposed to even low levels of radiation, uh, was, was decontaminated and was up, the best would be unwilling to go back to work for something like 20 years. So when we have these invisible threats, the fear of this is very, very, long, very different than other forms of threats, whether the threat is naturally occurring like a disease or it is like in nature. But there's another part of this I want to mention that's specific to your question, is pandemics um, and pandemics by their nature are long emergencies and they typically occur in about two or three discrete waves of illness. That's what we know because we typically have about two or three pandemics per century. Obviously, most of them are pretty mild or moderate and they don't really make any big ripples. But when people think about, well, what's the trauma, you know, from COVID-19? I want to kind of bring you back to this place that and this is kind of a really important starting place to any discussion of uh, the psychology or the psychological effects of terrorism or of disasters, is the human response to disasters and terrorism is both hazard-specific and phase-specific. And what I mean by hazard-specific is obviously we do not react the same way to fire, flood, and earthquake as we do to a mass shooting, as we do to a disease outbreak, and so forth. And we're seeing that in real time. The phase-specific part is, again, something we've all observed, 
the way people react in hour one is different than day one, week one, month one, and year one, and it changes across the timeline. So in regards to the pandemic, because the pandemic is going to be a long emergency, and because the pandemic is going to happen in different waves of different severity, the reactions we have are going to be very specific to those points on the timeline. So let me be just a little more specific, you know, if, it, if it's helpful. We are on still nationally and for me kind of regionally, New York, New Jersey area, which has been a part hit in terms of our uh, casualties. Um, we are still somewhat on the front side of the first wave. And, you know, our authorities, our health authorities are telling us that we may have peaked or, or the peak is not a very accentuated peak. It's more of a plateau right now. But we're expecting at some point the numbers to start decreasing on a daily basis. Less people reported sick, less people dying. On the front side of the first wave, what we see psychologically is primarily fear, anxiety, stress, um, and to some degree, you know, for lack of, of overusing a word, you know, a terror or an extreme dread about the situation. So it's really a fear-driven response. We're not, you don't see traumatic stress much on the first side, at least through the, not through the larger community. Now, I will uh, qualify that by saying if your family or you yourself have lost a loved one uh, to that, of course, there's going to be that you know, traumatic nature, there's going to be that grief response if it has resulted in a loss. But after we pass the first, you know, the, the front side of the first wave, past the peak or the plateau, and we're on the downhill run, we're now on the back side of the first wave. This is where you start to see trauma. This is where you start to see grief and loss and bereavement. And you also start to see different sorts of anger and other emotions become much more dominant after we pass the peak. So that's a very long-winded explanation to, you know, an answer that, that was probably um, easily more expressed as it all depends. It depends on where we are on the timeline. It depends not just which wave we're on, but if we're on the front side or the back side of one of those waves, it depends on so many things. And just to kind of build on that, if we think about like, well, why on the front side of the first wave would we have a greater potential for panic? And remember, panic is actually unlikely in most disasters. Panic is something very, very specific, and it's actually competitive behavior. It's driven by two dynamics, perception of limited opportunity for, for escape and limited opportunity for, for critical supplies. So on the front side of the first event, we saw people cleaning out the, the stores for things ranging from toilet paper to hand sanitizer and masks and uh, wipes and disinfectants and all these kind of things. You don't get panic in other sorts of emergencies, but you're actually much more likely to get panic in a disease outbreak because of that. The other thing is on the front side of a pandemic, by virtue of its definition, a pandemic one means, of course, that it's global. Uh, this is why something like SARS is not a perfect reference point because SARS, although it's very significant, there's some similar characteristics in the virus. Uh, SARS affected 29 countries, killed about 750 people, and then sickened about 8,000. Is doesn't meet the criteria for a pandemic. But when we have something of this size and scope, of course, you know the other part of a definition of pandemic is 
it's a novel disease to which none of us have immunity. And therefore, because it's a novel virus, we can't yet have vaccine. And vaccine may be a year or more out. And we don't have effective therapeutics yet in terms of antivirals or plasma treatments and things like this just yet, although we may sometime soon. So because we don't have enough anything on the front side of the first wave, it's the, it's the place where we have the greatest likelihood for panic because then there's competition for everything. And states compete with each other to get enough ventilators and hospitals compete with each other to get enough PPE or personal protective equipment and neighbors compete with each other to get the last roll of toilet paper off the shelf and you get that response. And that is very tricky psychologically because the thing we count on in most emergencies psychologically, the single greatest asset we have in a post-disaster environment is community cohesion. And when panic is introduced, neighbor competes with neighbor, even beyond neighbor fears neighbor that you may get me sick or maybe contagious, but now neighbor actually potentially has to compete with neighbor. It actually very, very much tears at the fabric of a society or a culture in a way that you know other disasters and emergencies don't. Uh, even in you know something like a, a bombing event, you usually get a you know really robust community response like, you know, we will rebuild, we'll be a bigger, better fill in the blank, New York, Boston, um, you know, wherever an attack has occurred, Orlando, and so forth. Uh, but when we have these very slow rolling crises that have an aspect of invisibility, it creates a very different sort of psychological effect. And a lot of our models that I think uh, even mental health and well-intentioned and very knowledgeable mental health professionals need to be mindful of is that the nature of a, an invisible threat like a disease outbreak, or if it were a terroristic attack using chemical, biological, or radiological agents, uh, that invisibility changes things and the, and the duration of this event changes things in which we get a very different reaction uh, that may not look, at least not all the time, like trauma. And the approaches we have to intervention and the approaches we have to treatment may really need to be revisited uh, in terms of how to best help the population because this is not like other disasters. And if we think of the last great pandemic in 1918, 1919, the concepts we use in psychology today, they weren't really even spoken of or, or defined at that time. And people didn't take the same kind of psychological research after an attack to see what longitudinally long-term recovery looked like. So at a psychological level, there are some things we can take from different sorts of events and scenarios and extrapolate and use. In some ways, we're writing the playbook uh, all together as we're going along with this. Unfortunately, we're kind of building this plane as we're flying it in terms of the lessons learned. That's interesting because you mentioned, you know, pandemics are sort of forcing neighbors to be more competitive with each other over you know, toilet paper, Lysol, whatever. But at the same time, the only solution that has been sort of presented in light of therapeutics, in light of vaccines, is social distancing, is social distancing, quarantining yourself, um, and just sort of isolating yourself from other people in daily life. So I, I'm sort of curious, you know, what is that extreme 
isolation do to somebody over long term? And what does it, you know, to sort of, what does it do to somebody when you have to go from, you know, a highly social state of going to bars, coffee shops, football games, whatever, and then suddenly have to be, you know, constantly in your apartment, in your home, just isolated? Well, a couple things about that. First of all, it's a little difficult sometimes for people to reconcile the message and the messages that are being shared are kind of like we're all in this together. And, you know, that feels, you know, a little bit contradictory because you're also being asked to stay away from each other. So it's a, it's a, a different sort of concept to get your head around, like, we can't all get together for a memorial. We all can't get together for some sort of collective thing. And it's kind of human. I think it's kind of inherent to our, um, you know, just who we are as to have a lot of grief, a lot of rituals and collective actions around, you know, whether memorials or vigils and things around losses that we do as groups. And it's kind of like this group way of healing and that's not happening. And that's going to actually become a, a bit of a challenge down the road because a lot of people are not going to be able to grieve the way they normally would. And I'll give you, you know, a few examples. I mean, they're, they're very stark, but I know in uh, New York uh, City, for example, uh, hospitals and hospital morgues had been so overloaded that uh, for unclaimed um, individuals, they were going towards mass graves and for uh, handling excess morgue, excess morgue, morgue capability to use refrigerator trucks. And obviously that's going to be very, very difficult for loved ones to think about uh, from a dignity standpoint and maybe religious standpoint, how those bodies are handled. So there are things about um, the response that are real complicating variables in terms of like how we, we grieve together and that can't happen together. So not only is there a cost to social isolation and we know and there's actually volumes written on like, you know, whether you're in solitary confinement or you're a prisoner of war or some other dire situation in which you're forced into isolation and, and you know, things of that nature. I have to tell you the, the literature on that does, is not a one-to-one correlation to our situation for most people. Because just as you and I are speaking now, and we have the capacity probably to pick up your phone, a smartphone, and do a video chat or FaceTime or Skype or Zoom with somebody in a moment's notice, we still, in a distancing way, are able to maintain social connectivity. And social distancing and social isolation are actually two different things. The literature and the science around social isolation you know, as you would imagine, uh, talks about very severe um, psychological consequences for people who endure long, long periods of social isolation. But we are, that's not a a direct kind of, you know, one-to-one relationship or or apples-to-apples kind of comparison uh, between our current environment, because we are still maintaining Many of us, I know there's divides around this that are generationally in terms of access and familiarity with the technologies, uh, socioeconomically as well. Um, but a vast majority of our society is able to maintain a very high level of social connectivity while still having to have social distancing. So people have asked um, and do ask 
you know, about the long-term consequences of social isolation. And I don't know that our current models and knowledge of the impact of social isolation actually were developed during a time of the kind of hyper-connectivity that we all have. In fact, one of the things I've heard from many of my colleagues across several disciplines in the last weeks is my greatest stress right now is not social isolation, it's keeping up with how many Zoom calls I have every day. And I'm, I'm probably more hyper-connected with people than I typically would have been in a normal work environment. Now, granted, we're not in physical proximity to those people, but we really haven't, for many of us, lost that level of social connectivity where we actually feel isolated. So, you know, as I said, if we look at the mental health consequences of true social, social isolation, they're dire. I mean, they're some of the most severe mental health consequences that, you know, we can have. But I don't know, you know, that that will be the outcome of social distancing. And the other thing I know uh, with some degree of confidence is as we have second or third waves of the disease, uh, we actually may, because of this, becoming more familiar with this way of living, becoming more adapt um, to communicating and remaining connected this way, it, it may be that the second and third waves are not just less frightening for people, but less isolating for people if we do have to move back to uh, a social distancing posture again. So as I said, there's some things we could take away from the history books and some things we could take away from the textbooks in psychology that have application to our current situation. But because the last great pandemic really none of these kind of concepts or records were, were part of the d discussion. Uh, we're not so sure exactly how tightly they fit our current circumstance. And there's going to be a lot to be learned, uh, lots of lessons learned and hopefully, you know, shared with each other. And we'll probably look for ways to adapt our existing concepts and models of assistance and intervention and treatment to the current environment. But it's going to require a lot of creativity because we simply don't have a playbook for this this sort of event. Interesting. I, I find your your point kind of really elucidating in the sense of, you know, we might be physically distant, but at the same time, you, you're, you know, our society has this degree of hyper connectivity that, you know, <laughs> like like the example I use, like in my professional life, I have never done more video chats. Like I think I, in the last month that I have been working from home, have done more video chats and been in contact with my team more than the three years of working in an office, ironically enough. Um, yeah. So we're coming to the sort of the end of the show and it's, you know, per tradition, per um, what we do here is we, we like to, the last question we ask is kind of open-ended. You know, we want to, you as the guest to leave us with something to think about, something to chew on, something to, you know, something to walk away from this conversation, you know, sort of mulling in, 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 our, in our head. Well, I, I guess as a closing statement, I think it's important to uh, all aspects of national security. And here I'll apply something very basic like the, uh, the four phases of emergency management, mitigation, planning, preparedness, and recovery, that as we look at our national security 
be challenges across all of those phases. Um, that we understand that physical security and the physical security actions we take and the psychology of this are intimately intertwined, that one actually can't be pulled apart from each other because as we take physical actions, um, they cause emotional consequences, and we make decisions about what physical actions to take based on our kind of emotional and cognitive response to perceived threats. And this is interesting because I very often will speak at, um, and I do routinely, uh, you know, Regional Intelligence Academy, and sometimes I'm talking to new security analysts and you know, who are coming into the field, and sometimes I'm speaking to uh, very, very experienced people in counterterrorism and, and national security. And one of the things that's always striking to me at the end of the conversation is folks who come up to me after a lecture or a class and say, that was really interesting, that was really great, and I've never heard that before. And that tells me something very important. And it tells me that very often the psychological discussion is at best an afterthought or very, very secondary to the process. Security, whether it's corporate security, it's homeland security, it's security in my home in terms of our door locks and windows and security system, is a two-part equation. There's security stuff. You know, there's equipment and there's machines and there's technologies and there's security practices, the things that people do. And the things that people do that make us more or less secure are very, very sensitive to our own perception of threat, our, you know, our level of confidence, how we're influenced, you know, by um, in so many different things, whether it's media or government and otherwise. But in my classes, as I said, and these are not necessarily uh, academic classes. There was a time for me when I was a you know, classroom professor or, or adjunct professor, and that was interesting. But my audiences today, by and large, are practitioners, uh, varying lengths of uh, involvement in the field from brand new to hardened veterans uh, of the national security you know, environment from local law enforcement to federal uh, intelligence agencies and so forth. And universally, regardless of the audience, I get that feedback. We haven't heard these things before. And I see their importance and I understand how I can apply some of these. And maybe they help me think about some of our challenges a little bit differently. And to me, uh, as I said, on the upside, I think that's wonderful. Uh, they've heard these messages and can incorporate them, and I'm glad to be part of delivering these messages. On the downside of that, I'm always a little discouraged that, um, that people haven't heard this before, and they've been practicing counterterrorism and anti-terrorism and national security, different, different disciplines in national security for so many years, perhaps, uh, at high levels of their profession, not having been exposed to some of these concepts. So to bring it kind of full circle, everything about terrorism is psychological. And our failure to kind of recognize that at the onset in everything that we think about 
in terrorism and counterterrorism um, leaves us more vulnerable. It's a gap in our it's a gap in our education uh, to not be thinking about this at a deeper psychological level, and it should not be something left to you know a person like me. This is to I think every operator. Uh, across all of our disciplines in military and homeland security, uh, to the beat cop, to the mall security guard, to understand that we're talking about human behavior. And the more we understand those behaviors as they relate to both uh, the causes of terrorism, the prevention of terrorism, and the response to terrorism, the better I think we do uh, as a people and as a nation. And perhaps at some optimistic future point, uh, maybe start to break and redefine that cycle between victim and perpetrator uh, into some more uh, productive sort of paradigms. So those are my closing sort of ideas. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course.